Hello, my name is Amy Hughes. I'm one of the pediatric otolaryngologists at Connecticut Children's, and I'll be talking with you today about the evaluation and management of Strider. The objectives of this talk are to understand the types of Strider and the levels of obstruction that they are associated with, a review of how to evaluate Strider and its associated symptoms, and then I'll provide a differential diagnosis for the noisy breathing and Strider by the sound the child's making and by their age. And then lastly, a review of how to diagnose these different pathologies and then uh, treatment. We'll start with a brief review of the infant and uh, the infant anatomy of the larynx. And so essentially one thing to uh, remember is that in an infant, the larynx, the larynx sits high in the neck. And so the epiglottis is right behind the soft palate. So as a result, when these kids are breathing, it's often hard to tell the level of obstruction. And so something in the larynx might actually sound like it's coming from the nose because of that proximity. proximity. Additionally, infants are preferential nasal breathers for this reason. As they age, the larynx will drop down in the neck, the epiglottis separates from the palate, it becomes a little bit easier to determine the level of obstruction. To define strider, so strider, what we think of it as is an audible noise. And often we think of it as a high-pitched noise that's caused by turbulent airflow through a partially obstructed airway. I'll go over the different levels of obstruction and how those and how the strider sounds coming from each level. So starting up high with the nasopharynx, so in the back of the nose and the oropharynx in the back of the mouth, strider will sound more of a lower pitch noise, like a stertor or a snoring type noise. As we move down, supraglottic obstruction, so right above those vocal cords is what we typically think of and probably what we see the most of. Uh, you'll hear an inspiratory strider from the collapse of those structures. So the structure sitting right above the vocal cords will fall in with, uh, when patients breathe in and you get that negative pressure and you'll hear an inspiratory strider. Expiratory strider is more often caused by uh, intrathoracic lesion. So not necessarily, um, you know, not typically something in the vocal cord level or the supraglottic level, but lower down in the chest. I would say this is what we see maybe, you know, least commonly. And then a fixed lesion of the subglottis, so right below those vocal cords at the level or at the level of the vocal cords will present more with a biphasic strider or some uh, cervical tracheal lesions like a tracheomalacia. So there are a couple important things to think of when evaluating these patients in the office and obtaining a history. So, you know, first is a birth history. So, you know, were they intubated at birth? Was it a traumatic delivery? If they were intubated, how long were they intubated for? Did they have, you know, multiple repeat intubations? Um, then looking at the age of, of the onset of the strider. So was it present immediately at birth? Did it start about two weeks after? Or is it really becoming more prominent around two to three months, six to eight weeks? When is the family first noticing it? And this can help, you know, really help you uh, differentiate some different diagnoses. How severe is it? Is it associated with bruises? Are they having apneic spells, cyanotic spells? Is it worsening? Um, you know, maybe it was only every now and then, and now it's on a daily basis. What worsens it? So is it worse when they're feeding? Is it worse when they're on their back? Uh, how are they doing with feeding? Are there concerns for aspiration? Are they coughing or choking with feeding? Are there any special maneuvers that the family has to do? Um, are they having reflux after feeding? 
And then at night, how they're doing with sleeping, if they're having evidence of sleep disordered breathing with loud snoring, pausing, gasping, apneic episodes. And then obviously after a good history, you want to do a good physical exam. So, you know, the first thing, so vital signs. So the, the growth curve is probably one of the most important things. Are they staying on their own growth curve? How is their weight gain? And then while I'm evaluating the patient or even just talking to the family, often I can get a good idea of how significant the strider is. I, you know, just by watching um, the child in the, you know, in the parent's arms, are, are they having strider all the time? Is it just in certain positions? Is it inspiratory, expiratory, uh, biphasic? Are they working hard to breathe? You know, does the respiratory rate seem, uh, seem fast? Are they retracting where you see them pulling in uh, right above the sternum, supersternally? Um, you know, once you're examining further, is there a subcostal or intercostal retractions? Uh, you can, you know, auscultate and listen. And the little kids and the infants, sometimes that's hard because you can hear the strider everywhere. Um, you know, what we'll do is we'll sometimes take the end off of the stethoscope and actually just uh, listen more discreetly at the nasal cavity or at the larynx to try and differentiate where that noise is coming from. And then if they feed during the office visit, that can be really helpful too. You'll be able to see whether or not uh, they may be aspirating. Next, I'm going to move on to a differential diagnosis. Uh, and I'm going to start with infants because, again, that's what we most commonly think of or see. And I'll start uh, again at the top and go over nasal obstruction. And so, you know, thinking about different causes of uh, strider from nasal obstruction, I'm going to really focus on the outpatient causes. But one thing, you know, that we do see that we hear about inpatient is uh, bilateral quinal atresia. Usually kids won't be discharged without this diagnosis. And so they're having enough trouble at birth that, um, that it's noticed pretty, pretty quickly. And what you'll see is an inability to feed, cyanosis with feeding that really resolve once they cry. And again, that's that preferential nasal breathing. Um, again, you know, and also when they're born and you're trying to pass the flexible suction, it just won't go. And so typically this is diagnosed prior to discharge uh, after birth. Things that you might see more uh, as an outpatient, so rare, but still uh, something that the, a patient presents with every now and then is piriform aperture stenosis. What this is, is this is narrowing in the very, very front of the nose. Um, and so it's a bony narrowing that, that uh, presents with a nasal congestion, uh, poor weight gain, trouble feeding. Those are kind of the common presentations. Um, and, you know, if you're seeing those things in a child and they seem to be almost failure to thrive or really having trouble and they just sound so congested, I, you know, I can try and make that noise for you. I'm not, I'm not crying at it, but like a... <laughs> Where it's really coming from the, you know, from the nose, that could be a pair from aperture stenosis. Usually we'll see these kids and one telltale sign for us is we try and scope them with our flexible scope and the scope doesn't fit through the front of the nose, in which case we might get a CT scan, uh, which is how we diagnose this. Um, it can be associated with some midline defects like, it, uh, like holoprosencephaly or hypopituitarism. Um, and so for this reason, we often recommend an MRI and genetics evaluation too. Uh, these kids, we can try and grow them and use Afrin drops or Predforte drops. Um, but if they're having significant trouble, then sometimes uh, they'll require a surgery to kind of open things up. Other things that you might see uh, as outpatient uh, pediatricians, so thyroglass, uh, sorry, <laughs> nasolacrimal ductus, sorry, a little slip there. Uh, nasolacrimal ductus, which occurred laterally, um, kind of just under the inferior turbidant. And so 
just on anterior rhinoscopy in the office, you look in the nose and you see what looks like two inferior turbinates. And what that is, is a cyst where the nasolacrimal duct just didn't open. Um, and they'll present, if they're bilateral, they may present with a significant congestion and trouble feeding. Um, and usually we'll see these kids in the office and we have to be careful to look in the front of the nose. When we scope, we could easily miss this just by going straight back. Uh, these are treated surgically by opening or marsupializing these, these cysts. Um, other nasal masses, so encephalocele,s gliomas, teratomas, uh, kind of you know rarely seen, but but things to think about if it seems like it's more of a nasal obstruction. Moving down to the larynx, so you know obviously laryngomalacia is the main one that we all see. So I'll spend a little bit of time on this. Uh, as as most of you probably know, so it's the most common cause of neonatal stridor. Usually it's not present at birth. Usually it's something that will start to present days to week after birth and then start to peak. Uh, several months and usually resolve by 12 to 18 months. Fortunately, the majority of these kids uh, have more mild or minor laryngomalacia and never require intervention. So about 70 to 90% of kids won't need any interventions. When evaluating these kids, so reasons to refer to otolaryngology or signs of severity. So if they're having apneic spells, uh, if, they're, you know, have, if they're admitted to the hospital with a brewery, if they're tachypnic or cyanotic, if they're having significant trouble feeding, so if there's concerns for aspiration or if they're you know, falling off their, their growth curve a bit and it seems like they can't keep up with their caloric intake because of their uh, tachypnea or work of breathing and there's concerns for failure to thrive, or, and this is the one I have the most trouble differentiating sometimes in the office, or if there are concerns for sleep apnea. I think because you know the breathing can be a little bit inconsistent, this is often hard to elicit from families, but. Um, if they're snoring loudly at birth and the family is seeing pausing or gasping episodes, then, you know, that would be another reason to send them over. And so, you know, in addition to making the definitive diagnosis, we want to make sure that, you know, we're not missing a different, uh, different cause of these symptoms. And so um, the breathing in these kids, it'll be almost more of like a grunting sound. So it's not necessarily that high pitch strider, inspiratory strider that we think of, but it's more of a lower pitch kind of fluttering grunting sound. Um, it's more prominent with crying and feeding and also when these kids are supine. And so we'll scope them in the office and make that diagnosis. And what we see in the office is we see some extra tissue sitting above the vocal cords that will just kind of collapse in when they're breathing in. Um, we also see kind of a tightness there. The epiglottis will sometimes be more of like a taco shaped rather than a U shaped and kind of draw that tissue closer together and result in that turbulent flow. As I mentioned, the majority of these kids have mild laryngomalacia, and um, if we diagnose that at the office visit, we usually will just see them back in four to six weeks to make sure that everything continues to go well. For kids with more moderate laryngomalacia, where maybe they're, you know, they're gaining weight okay, they're doing okay, but they're having a lot of trouble feeding, it's taking a lot of time, there's maybe some concerns with um, choking or aspiration, then we'll recommend a, a feeding team evaluation and start an anti-reflux medication if it seems more moderate. And then those patients with more severe laryngomalacia, we start thinking, do we need to look for anything else? So in addition to treating the laryngomalacia, do we need to perform a laryngoscopy and bronchoscopy to make sure that the rest of the airway is normal? And so that's usually what we'll recommend, especially if there is an element of failure to thrive or sleep apnea, um, or you know, if the child's really struggling. The most common thing that we find on these uh, scopes, the most common secondary lesion is subclotic stenosis followed by tracheomalacia. 
it's only about 10 to 20% of these patients that require supraglottoplasty, which is the procedure where we do remove a little excess tissue or open things up. One important thing that I tell all the families is this is going to help their symptoms, but it might not make the noise go away. So even if your patients had, you know, operative intervention and they're still noisy, that's okay. The noise tends to persist after the procedure. Staying with uh, the laryngeal levels of obstruction, vocal fold paralysis is the most common next um, abnormality that we find. This is about 10% of congenital laryngeal lesions. And usually it's the bilateral cord paralysis that's going to present with strider. Um, so these kids will have a high-pitched inspiratory strider. Um, sometimes if they're working hard to breathe, you may even be able to hear a little biphasic component because it can be fixed. And, um, and they may even have enough trouble that they end up requiring a tracheostomy tube. But important things to think of, so possible causes of bilateral cord paralysis uh, one is idiopathic, where we never really find out why they have it. Uh, CNS anomalies, so a Chiari malformation is another one. And so all of these kids get a MRI just to evaluate for a Chiari for any uh, CNS uh, anomaly that might be contributing. Complex heart disease can contribute, uh, mediastinal pathology. Those are some other things we think of. I recently had a patient with congenital myasthenia, so uh, different uh, neurologic genetic causes may also contribute, although rare. And then it can be acquired from birth trauma, intubation, um, from surgical intervention if they had, um, you know, a cardiac procedure. Unilateral cord paralysis presents very differently. They don't typically present with strider, although they can. More often, they'll have a feeding difficulty um, with aspiration and a weak cry. Staying with the infants, just a couple other things to mention. So subquatic stenosis um, is, you know, it's rare to find this congenitally. More often we'll see it acquired. And so, you know, I think a lot of these also are diagnosed inpatient, but, you know, if you've got a patient who all of a sudden is developing a recurrent croup or who has a biphasic strider for respiratory distress and they have a history of intubation, then subquatic stenosis is, you know, should be on your radar. Uh, this is usually diagnosed with a direct laryngoscopy and bronchoscopy. We can't always see this on our flexible scopes in the office. And so this is really rare without a significant clinical history, but um, still something to think of, especially if your uh, patient has been intubated in the past. Subglottic mangiomas is another, you know, another diagnosis to have on your radar. Although they're uncommon, we definitely see these. Uh, more often they happen in females. It is the most common neoplasm of the infant airway. And most often these kids, so this is where that timeline becomes important because most often these kids will be fine at birth, but then sometime within the first six months of life, usually somewhere between kind of two and, you know, two and four months of life, they'll have worsening progressive strider. And it can sound biphasic. Uh, sometimes it can even sound a little bit harsh where you can hear the move, you know, the air moving in and back out. Um, and one thing to look for is a cutaneous hemangioma. So 50% will also have a cutaneous hemangioma um, at birth. And so if you have a patient who is doing great and then all of a sudden, you know, around eight weeks of life, they're having progressive strider, they seem to be presenting with episodes of croup, this should definitely be on your radar. Uh, these are diagnosed usually with the direct laryngoscopy and bronchoscopy. So we evaluate uh, these kids. And if we're concerned, uh, we'll take a look at their airway uh, in the operating room. And then uh, the natural history of these is that they'll uh, 
grow up through 12 months of age pretty rapidly and then start to resolve over months to years with about 50% resolving by age five. Uh, treatment, as we all know, is with beta blockers, which has really you know, been such a great addition. It's pretty rare that these kids need surgery. Sometimes they'll need um, some additional steroid if they have a cold or for a little bit of breakthrough symptoms, but otherwise they typically do pretty well. A couple other kind of rare uh, laryngeal uh, superglottic um, findings, an anterior glottic web, which, you know, it's pretty rare to see these. Usually these will present with kind of a harsh inspiratory strider. Um, important things for these are that they're associated with the velocardiofacial. So that's one thing we might look for in our, on our scope that can be confused with um, vocal cord paralysis. And then in kids with a history of intubation, you can also get a vollecular cyst, which is a little cyst that'll form it where the back of the tongue meets the meets the epiglottis. Um, and again, usually these kids will have a history of intubation or some sort of instrumentation. And these can really trick you for the ringomalacia. They can push that epiglottis back and make you think that that's uh, what's going on. And so these are some of those other things that we're looking for when we're saying if they've got more severe symptoms, you know, send them over, we'll scope and make sure that there's nothing else going on. Uh, I'm gonna move down to airway, into the trachea, the last kind of category for infants. And mostly talk about tracheomalacia. So this is really the most, um, most prominent pathology affecting the trachea, the most prevalent pathology affecting the trachea, where you get a dynamic uh, narrowing of the trachea with a weakness of the tracheal wall. These kids present, you know, the best way I have to describe their breathing is like a washing machine. So they're going to sound wet. You're going to hear it both on inspiration and on expiration. And it just sounds like mucus uh, that's trapped. They can have a lot of rattling. Um, they often will have a, a kind of chronic cough presentation. They may have a history of recurrent lower airway infections, wheezing, retractions, and then more of that kind of strider either worth, with expiration or sometimes uh, biphasically. These are um, diagnosed best in bronchoscopy, but sometimes we can see it on an airway fluoro as well. The good thing with tracheomalacia is the majority of kids will outgrow this as the cartilage um, becomes, you know, kind of uh, firms up with age. So most of the time they'll outgrow this by around two years of age or start to do better. Um, sometimes atrovent inhalers or, you know, different techniques that pulmonary has to offer can help, um, can kind of help in the interim, but it's pretty rare that they need surgical intervention. Other tracheal causes, so vascular anomalies, vascular rings, complete tracheal rings. Again, these things are all more rare, so I'm not gonna spend too much time on those. I'm going to increase our age range a little bit and switch over to kind of more infectious causes of Strider and move up to, you know, kind of your older infants or school age kids. And I'll start with croup, which is something that I think we've all been seeing uh, pretty frequently. Most often this is going to affect children ages six months to three years, but, you know, you can see it in an older age group. And it typically presents with a, that barking seal type cough. Uh, inspiratory strider or strider, and then respiratory distress. It's considered recurrent if kids have two or more episodes, and this is present in about 6% of kids. And typically, we don't really consider recurrent croup a diagnosis. It's often kind of an underlying, there's often an underlying etiology. And so it's the presentation of something else that's going on. And that's what we have to try and figure out. Um, you know, when to refer these kids, I think, you know, it can be a tough thing to decide. 
And I found a study from 2016 that looked at five uh, different publications and the different laryngoscopy and bronchoscopy findings in these patients with recurrent croup. Most often they found uh, subglottic stenosis, esophageal reflux, or bronchotracheomalacia. But importantly, um, those were kind of the most often abnormalities that were found, but most often they found nothing. And so only 8% of the direct laryngoscopies and bronchoscopies found uh, something that was clinically significant. And what they did is they looked up the risk factors. So when you're thinking about these kids, reasons to have greater concern that there's something else going on, like an anatomic abnormality, would be if there was a history of intubation uh, in the past, if the patient was ever admitted for their croup, so if they've had an inpatient consultation for croup, if they're younger, so they found both age less than one and less than three to uh, have an association, and if they've got a history of prematurity, and I think that probably speaks with their history of intubation. What they found is that uh, the association between croup and reflux is about 20% and asthma and allergy and um, croup about 35%. And so, you know, I think if you're, if there aren't a lot of risk factors and you're trying to decide different treatment options, then targeting a reflux, asthma and allergies is uh, often a good place to start. And in general, I would say we have a high threshold for DLB in these uh, patients, especially if there is not a significant risk factor. And so a lot of times we'll treat them conservatively. Uh, the next uh, infectious cause is epiglottitis. And so again, very, very, very rare. So I'm not gonna spend much time on this, but I just wanna say that since, um, since the HIV vaccine, what we've found is that the age group over the past 30 years has changed significantly. And so it used to be uh, the average age was about five to six years of age, and now it is 14 years of age. And so if you have an older uh, child with fever, hot potato voice, drooling, posturing, uh, they just seem like they're having trouble and they're pretty sick, then epiglottitis is a possibility. And so this is an, uh, more of a diagnosis in teenagers now than in the younger kids. And then lastly, you know, anyone presenting with, uh, with Strider acutely where they don't have a cold, they don't have any other associated symptoms, you know, thinking about a foreign body and making sure that there's no history of foreign body ingestion, obviously in our crawling, uh, age group where they're putting things in their mouths or there's other kids at home. Um, it's something to think about, but also in, you know, in older kids who often have a pen cap in their mouth that they might um, accidentally aspirate or, you know, we've seen all sorts of things, a nail attack, um, you know, what have you. And so any child with kind of acute onset uh, strider without any other symptoms, uh, that's one other thing to think about. Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to the podcast. If you have any questions, always feel free to reach out. We're happy to help. Thank you so much.